the thesis of how do we get developers to adopt tools is to make it super easy. There's this virtual cycle around trying to sort of establish something as a best practice, and it has to start from simplified. Forced behaviors and sensible defaults can go a really long way to correcting and influencing the behavior you want from people, especially for security. Our head of product is not a developer, and she forces us to think in the context of a user. Design really has to be a team sport in DevTools companies. It's really hard to sell risk reduction without hyping the risk. Finding security issues is pointless. What's useful is fixing security issues. Hi, I'm Steve. And I'm David, and you're listening to Don't Make Me Code the bi-weekly series where we discuss developer experience and some of the unique challenges we face building developer-facing products. Don't Make Me Code is brought to you by HeavyBit, a nine-month program for developer-facing startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. And if you're interested in being a guest on this show or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at dmmc at heavybit.com or on Twitter at Don't Make Me Code. We're calling this episode of Don't Make Me Code Security Ergonomics, and we're here with Guy Pajarni, the CEO of SNCC. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And so we always start with a little intro. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about SNCC? Uh, sure, yeah. So my, um, my background, I, I'm Israeli. I worked in security for about a decade or actually maybe about 14 years if you sort of count the, uh, the Israeli army, and uh, moved to Canada somewhere in that process. I went through a bunch of acquisitions. Uh, left security to found a web performance startup called Blaze, uh, which got acquired by Akamai. I was a CTO at Akamai for uh, three and a half years or so, moved to London in the process, <laughs> so that's where I am now. And uh, yeah, about a, a year and a half ago or so, got the, uh, the itch to get back into startup land. Uh, left Akamai to, to found Sneak. Uh, at Sneak, Sneak is... Um, Developer tooling company that does security. That's really the core premise of the company. Uh, right now, we focus on open source security, specifically in uh, the Node.js world, helping you find and fix vulnerabilities in Node.js and PM dependencies, and just sort of make that as easy and seamless as possible, as I'm sure we'll talk about during the episode. The title of security ergonomics comes from an interesting place. We all, as makers of developer tools, have concerns of both security and, of course, developer experience design. And in your world, those things collide. And so I'm interested to hear more about how the product and its security and UX play together. Right, yeah. So we, we think that ergonomics, the ease of use, you know, how do you sort of consume security? Is key and critical in the adoption of security by developers. Right? There's this balance when you talk about security. Everybody wants to build secure software, but it's just it's hard, right? When you look at the security tooling landscape today, it tends to be in pretty bad shape in terms of usability, right? It tends to be expensive tools that are hard to get started with. They don't tend to be self-serve. And there's a lot of good technology there. They build a lot of sophistication inside. But it's not easy to maybe get it out. When you expect developers to embrace security, there's a lot of factors, a lot of ways or, or needs to do this. There's a lot of incentive question. But fundamentally, there's a big aspect of how do you get started. You know, first of all, you talk about why should you get started and like why do you care? How do you how do you even get going? And then subsequently, you know, if you do want to do it, you know, what's what's your first step? At developers you know, we have a very short attention span in that sense, right? You've got in a minimal amount of time to uh, to capture somebody and and actually try it out. So it was already a bit of a higher bar to get somebody even interested, get a developer that you know oftentimes perceives it as not their job mm. uh, to still try it out, still try a tool, and now it needs to, to sort of just work. So a lot of our 
premise, in fact, a lot of the sort of the thesis of how do we get developers to adopt tools is to make it super easy, right? If there's this kind of balance of you can imagine the scale where on one hand you have how much you care about security uh, and on the other side you have you know how much friction it is or how hard is it to address it. So on one hand we try to educate and everybody should care more about security but on, on the other side it's just let's make it that easy. right? Just mm-hmm. make it as, as trivial as possible to get going. And you know, then you can act and you can take your first step and you know, then we have a conversation and I can kind of move you forward. I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. I mean, it seems like almost every time you you're, you're thinking about security, like you're almost like by nature making things harder to use, almost by definition, I guess. Like, for example, like one-time passwords. Like, great. Like now all my accounts are more secure, but I have to go set them up and like find, have some way to make sure that all my employees have them set up and like deal with management of all of that. And it just like adds all of this extra friction and work. And I know that it's good, so I do it. But it's just like. Right, yeah, and it's a, it, you know, it ends up working, right? For most things, you know, if it's if it's easier, you do it more. Uh, and security is not only is it not an exception; it's you know, it's probably even kind of stronger in that sense. I think for many of these things, there's the ease of use and first action, and then there's there's some perception of what is right or what is minimal, right? There are some things you do lock the door at home. You know, well, maybe not everywhere in the world, but like in most places, you would lock the door. And you don't really like sit there and do a calculated risk of whether it's your, worth your time to sort of you know put that key in the in the in the lock and twist it or sort of turn it. It's just something you do. So there's some social norms, there's some best practices that people accept. Uh, and I feel like in some aspects of security today, like you talk about one-time passwords, those have evolved and they go hand in hand with simplicity. So having a password for every single account. Would not make sense at all before you had password managers because you wouldn't remember them, right? You're just human, and you wouldn't really think about like humans are lousy at thinking about what will be a hard password and what wouldn't be. So now you have auto-generated password, easily stored in sort of a one password, last pass, or whatever that you have in them in them in there. So suddenly it became easier, right? Similarly, phones made two-factor auth easier. So all of these things. Go hand in hand, where on one hand it becomes easier, so people are more willing to adopt it, and then they see others using it, and it just sort of becomes a bit of a norm. And in the techie world, for instance, today things like a password manager have really become very popular. They haven't quite permeated to this sort of general population. So, but you know, I, I think there's a there's this virtual cycle around trying to sort of establish something as a best practice, and it has to start from simplifying, simplifying, simplifying. Yeah, yeah to me, it's almost like tools. That introduce new sensory perceptions to us. That password managers give us the added ability to kind of see and share passwords. I think about it like in your cell phone address book, like how we don't have to remember anyone's phone number anymore. They're just there. And we don't have to remember our passwords anymore because we have great password managers. And for vulnerabilities, it feels like you're introducing a new sensory perception. Now I can see where these vulnerabilities live and I have a tool to fix them. And so now it both raises awareness of the issue and helps me. Get the power to do something about it. Yeah, precisely. And this is great in general and kind of a good path to maybe try and model in the world of security. There is still a challenge where some security actions are security features and they're very visible. You might not think about the implications of them, but they're at least in your face. Like authentication is a good example of that. But some others are a little bit more insurance and a little bit more vaccine. So one of the challenges, one of the goals is to try and bring them up, right? Just make you aware of the problem. A good example of this is uh, HTTPS, or maybe another example. I released this blog post that talked about how HTTPS adoption has doubled 
in the last year or so, or sort of between July of 2015 and 2016. And, you know, first of all, that's awesome and it's nice and sort of like a little bit of a mini security celebration. We don't get many of those. The other aspect of it is to say, you know, why, right? And how can we replicate that ease, um, elsewhere? And when you look at it and we try to unravel it, this is theory at this point, right? Because, you know, you don't really know the sort of mm-hmm. causation and correlation and all that stuff. But when you compare why that happened, there's been a combination of simplification, carrots and sticks, right? On one hand, it became easier. Things like, you know, Cloudflare made it free and easy and just a checkbox. GitHub pages have it on by default. Let's Encrypt made it both cheaper and more automation friendly to be able to get a certificate. So it's just been easier. Another aspect is sticks like Google telling you that HTTPS would rank you higher or I don't know, mm. like would rank you lower if your site was not HTTPS. Uh, or browsers saying they're going to show an indicator on HTTP sites to say that you are not secure. If you are not HTTPS, as opposed to showing you sort of a green indicator when you are secure, so that's sort of a big stick. And then you've got all sorts of carrots like HTTP two and a service worker and a bunch of new web technologies that are only enabled on mm. HTTPS. So sort of this combo of things that incentivize behavior and incentivize like both as individuals and organizations. And once again, HTTPS is like very visible. So now you see you browse websites and you can visibly see that there are just more HTTPS or whether it's HTTPS. Vulnerabilities are tricky. They're sort of backseen and a lot of our challenge is to try and you know make you aware of it. You know, it's sort of this this find stage, the ability of finding those issues. So we need to make it easier for you to find the issues. Now that you have them, you know, then you you have the opportunity to take action. Yeah, and so that's an interesting point. That something like a browser plugin, or you know, how Chrome will tell you if a website is not secure, and it's it's in your face, and it's in a place where an end user can see it. But like you were saying, vulnerabilities are are. Behind the scenes, they're a little bit harder to discover. And so, what does that look like for a, a SNCC user? How do you expose that to them, and how do you kind of give them that ability to see things more clearly? It's it's a constant challenge. First of all, I will say that. And when you talk about security, there's the initial take action, understand your current status, and then there's the ongoing what happens when the new vulnerability gets disclosed. So first, we need to get you to use the product. So it was just about lowering the bar to understand. All of those dependencies and vulnerabilities that you have very, very quickly and easily. We actually had a good learning about this moving from uh, or sort of expanding from our command line interface, from our CLI to a GitHub integration. So, what we've observed is we had a really, you know, what I think is a really easy to use command line interface where you could just do install snick, npm install snick, install dash g, and then you go to a folder and you do snick test. And it finds all the issues, it has good links and handy information around what is the title of each vulnerability and how was it found, and some severity indicator to align priority. And people liked it and they used it on one project, or on two projects, because it then became a bit of a hassle to like go through and you had to have it cloned. So that was one of our learnings from the CLI. When we did the GitHub integration, when we added that, then we, we modified that page and we had all the GitHub repositories and you had a test button next, next mm. to each one of those that you can do. And you would hit test and you would see the, the, the issues. And you know, lo and behold, users would press the test button on one or two or three of the repositories. They wouldn't do them all. Though. So we modified it and we made it uh, auto-run the test. Right? We had to do some tech kind of backend to be able to withstand that. But basically, as soon as you open that page up, it runs a test, which is totally static and non-obtrusive, on all of your repositories. Suddenly, users browse through all of those, and they now are substantially more, like we see this in the numbers, right? substantially more inclined to take action on the issues, because they have a bunch of these repositories that may or may not have been like their top priority. 
but you make them aware of it. So that was in the onboarding and kind of the you know the initial, just sort of expose them to the range of the problem. Then we have a whole set of other actions that have to do with proactive alerts and sending new issues when there's a new vulnerability that is applicable to you and that is relevant, how do we make you aware of it? And we've done all sorts of things around making, even if there's one champion on the team that has integrated Sneak, many of these notifications would go into, for instance, a fixed pull request, right? There's a new vulnerability, we send you a fixed pull request with the changes to make it go away. One advantage of that is it's a fixed pull request, you know, what mm. better way to uh, find out about a problem with, than with the solution of it. But the other is, while there was one champion that integrated, everybody sees the pull request, and that sort of exposes it. You know, we have a bunch of other integrations with other pull requests, just just allowing the one champion to now propagate that throughout the team. I really like that model. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, like kind of using GitHub as a distribution mechanism almost for for. Uh, I mean, that, that really aligns for for some of the tools that we've been using too. Like we just added you know, Hound and CodeCov and a couple of other things to one of our repos, and we did it because you could just push a button. And sort of get some really interesting information about your code, you know, without too much effort. Yeah, I mean, all it took is one person deciding to to go try those tools, and you know, now it's added to the repo, and eventually the whole team is using it. It's it's been successful with us, so I think. <laughs> and I think that's been a recurring theme here too: is that we all set out to discover ways of introducing our tools into workflows that devs are already doing every day. Because if you like with your early CLI, if you require them to kind of break their normal everyday flow and do something different, they're just not going to do it. And so the GitHub integration is awesome because you know they're probably going there every day anyway. But that that exact process, I feel like we've had a number of people talk about that exact sort of discovery process where how can we take our thing, integrate it into a normal everyday workflow that devs are already doing uh, to make that seamless. And that's awesome that you've like discovered that so quickly and and made it seamless for people. Yeah, thanks, and, and I think you know we definitely sort of see the the benefits of it. Uh, it was also good, like the champions actually appreciate this. So this is this is not just sort of you helping you know whatever sneak propagate more through the organization. It's you're helping this you know champion that cares about security, and you know once once the team reaches a certain size, you know fortunately there typically is you know some people that are in that category. You help them now educate and communicate with the rest. So. Not only is it sort of useful for us as, as sort of a business and, and sort of permeate the tools, it's actually you know helpful and, and those champions feel like you know we support them because because we do we sort of help them educate the world. The other aspect of of integrating with GitHub, you know, not only do you sort of expose more users to it, it's the fact that you again lower the bar around ease of use. Right, you come to them; they don't need to come to you. And if you introduce another another view, which inevitably you will need to, because there's a lot of information and there's just you know only so much you can do it. But if you have the right hooks, the right sort of pointers to tell them about a problem or about a necessary action or about a, a potential action, like something that they could do, then it just gives you the opportunity to provide value with a lower bar and then allow them to grow into deeper use of the tool. Yeah, the last company I worked at, we attempted to do something similar with vulnerabilities, and we could detect them pretty well. And our biggest traffic days by far were like when Heartbleed and Shellshock hit. Those were some of our biggest traffic days, and it was, I mean, not great news for for our end users, but they served as good marketing tactics. Like we could go write a blog post about how we would automatically find and and help people fix vulnerabilities. And another thing we were kind of talking about before was the walking the line between good product marketing and scare tactics because we don't want to seem like we're scaring people into using our product but this is also really it's valuable information yeah i think being constructive in security is uh, is tricky right like at the end of the day we're promoting 
uh, using tools that are kind of insurance, right? You are doing something to reduce risk, and if that risk hasn't materialized, it's really hard to know whether that is useful for you or not, right? You know, you bought this awesome new lock for the door, and then the next day nobody broke in. Does that mean it was smart to buy that lock for the door? Uh, or actually, no. What bothers me a little bit more is that you didn't buy a brand new lock for the door, <laughs> and then the next day nobody brought in. You know, is it smart to basically persist that behavior now? And you know, sometimes you know it's only when the person. Actually, gets hacked, right, or gets uh, mm-hmm. broken into. That 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 sort of triggers a behavior. You know, in other cases, you know, it's other factors, whether a desire to protect themselves or whether somebody else getting hacked. You know, just sort of scares them a little bit into into action. It's really hard for us. We set out to make Sneak a helpful brand, which manifested in even like the color scheme on the website, right? Just in many many different aspects of the of the company, and. It's a constant challenge, right? You know, it's really hard to sell risk reduction without hyping the risk. But you know, we try, and we try to sort of be helpful and focus on the fixes. And I think that's maybe worth you know talking about Heartbleed or Shellshock and such. You know, if you talk about a vulnerability, just in the case of uh, oh, oh, this guy is falling, you know how terrible this is. We're all you know hosed. Then you know that's sort of one thing. But if you talk about it in the sense of hey, there's this really big problem here, and here are some very handy things for you to fix and to help and protect yourself, suddenly it's appreciative and it's constructive. It's a builder's post, not a scarer's post. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I mean, so you know, thinking about tools, you know, like SNCC or just security in general, where it's like, you know, if you're setting out to build a new application, you know, this isn't sort of like one of the required steps between you and like Hello World on the web, right? How do you get into that sort of like required stack, like that people think about on the web? It's, it's not. It's not a simple feed, right? And you know, hopefully, it comes back to the almost peer pressure, right? Or the yeah. uh, these sort of become a best practice. You know, how did test-driven development kind of start to get traction? You know, arguably nowhere near sufficient still, or even CI, right? I think today, code coverage, continuous integration, these are things that. They pay dividends, maybe like not in terribly long periods of time, but they pay dividends. But people don't tend to, I guess my thesis is that people don't do them because, again, they sort of sat down and did some sort of thorough thinking around whether this is worth their while and whether a falsely broken build is, you know, not too time consuming, et cetera, et cetera, versus what they get. They do it because it's a best practice, because that's how it's done. So we try to help permeate this and make it easy, but also try to help, you know, those thought leaders and you know the open source projects and such that use Sneak to advertise it through badges, through, you know, just mm-hmm. conversations and highlights. And you know, we haven't quite figured out like a referral or a sharing mechanism. But you know, we, you know, coming back to the fact that everybody wants to be secure, we want to help the ones that do those champions help them celebrate that success. There, there's no single recipe, and I, I'd love always open to ideas and things uh, that we can do because it's a constant challenge. Yeah, I mean, the case for it seems to be making it itself in the media that every week there's another vulnerability and another hack, and that this seems like a core competency, like something that every company is going to have to do soon. Like we're going to have to find and fix vulnerabilities quickly because they're exploited as fast as they're found. Mm-hmm. And I think um, another aspect of trying to get this done in the in the world of uh, of software as a whole and evolution is about sharing what you do, and that's another thing that security is scary mm-hmm. for people. Like you know, Opsi wrote this great post around the container stack, right? Or sort of how how you chose a container orchestration system, and people really care about that, right? Because again, you don't want to make this super extremely knowledgeable request every time. It's okay to rely on some mass smarts and you know somebody that you see as a role model who has made a good decision and outlines what they did. People are afraid to share their security practices, right? It feels like you know I've just outlined all the things that I do, so you can find the things I don't do, and now you can kind of hack in. 
and it's hard. The, the DevOps kind of revolution, I don't know, sort of evolution that happened. A lot of it was based on these blameless postmortems around, you know, people getting up on stage and talking about, you know, how they do deployments, how they handle the failure, how they had this massive outage, and what they did about it. Really, really important for us to try and, as much as we can, evolve some of these practices around around security, right? And sort of see another post around, you know, how how you handle security, which security control mm-hmm. controls do you have, and help each other learn. Yeah. So segueing into like we've been talking about how we approach design and security, and so now we're all building teams to do this well. And another recurring topic on the show is how the DevTool space is one where it still feels like design is underserved and we need more of it. And it sounds like you've done a great job building a team to solve this problem with good design from the beginning. Yeah, so you know, I'd like to think we did, uh, and uh, it was it was intentional because I think, as I kind of mentioned before, we were keen to make it easy and and kind of lower the bar around getting started. So you know, my head of product, Joanna Coleman, who's you know she's amazing, and she's a, a UX person, right? And here we are, this you know developer tooling companies that are security, like heavily heavily technical topic, and our head of product is is not a developer. She's the only non-developer on the team, which you know she kind of pays for every day, but at the same Time, she's an amazing sort of UX person, and she forces us to think all the time, even when we're sort of uh, inclined to sort of jump to our sort of technical conversations, to think in the context of a user and how does that flow. We brought a good designer up front. We actually had a, an interesting conversation, by the way, it veers a little bit off the team around color scheme, which was fascinating to me around designers. This is like one of my learning experiences uh, working with UX and designers, where you know we wanted to build this color. Brand, or you know, we wanted to build a brand that is all about helpful and help fix issues. And the designer Mark, when he started working with us, he interviewed a bunch of people. He got that theme, and he came up with a color scheme, uh, suggesting it. And it was all you know really good in terms of being you know welcoming uh, and warm. And it was not at all alarming, including the colors for like the high severity vulnerability that you need to address, <laughs> <laughs> which should be a little bit alarming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is uh, this is the point where fear should kick in just a little bit. And it was really interesting to try and balance that. We get to this like magenta color for the uh, for the high severity that sort of uh, fit in. But it was a really interesting kind of exercise. So yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that we did this. You know, we you know thanks to to Joanna and I think the acceptance now of the entire team, but really sort of led by by her. And, and kind of the, the culture we've now built, we really do think about user flows all the time. We think about we think about making it better to fix, right? We when you think about security issues, finding security issues is pointless. It's actually not at all useful. What's useful is fixing security issues. So if there is already an easy thing to do to fix the problem, then sometimes all you need to do is help point the problem out and somebody will take action. But in our world, oftentimes there isn't an easy way to fix it. So it was important for us to actually build the functionality that helps fix it. Otherwise, you know, all we're doing is just causing noise for you. So so in our team, I think right now we've managed to permeate that lot. You know, I it, we're very tempted whenever there's some you know big hack or something like that to sort of write some post about it, and always somebody else in the team you now chimes in and says, "Hold on, you know, how is this useful to people? How is it just not you know some noise?" Uh, I just got held back by Danny, by my co-founder, sort of trying to talk about the uh, the sort of the DNC uh, conversation Back. and you know how the how the sort of the hacking happened there, um, and you know once again, so, well, how is that useful? And and sort of stop there. Yeah, we had a really similar conversation about colors, and it's one of those things in the monitoring world that is codified. And so we had to use red, yellow, green, and like 
we ended up calling it salmon instead of uh, <laughs> red. So, and in our marketing, like you do actually see some red, but we never go straight. You know, it, and I can't even give like scientific reasons for any of this. It was just like don't use red in monitoring marketing. Bad idea. Yeah, it's it's you know, there's definitely a lot to learn. I guess it comes down to sort of design and UX being every sort of single detail right mm. in that flow. I'd be curious, like, how do you get your? Like, it sounds like you have dedicated designers. How, do you get them involved even in things like CLI design? Like, I, I saw the CLI demo on your website; it's beautiful. Like, how do you, how do you sort of integrate design at that level? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of uh, evolution going on there. So, you know, first of all, we watched your talk, David, on uh, <laughs> on the sort of the heavy bit library, which was very, very, very uh, helpful on on sort of this notion. I love the sort of the premise of small, sharp tools. So, you know, it started there just. You know, maybe even at, with me, right? Just sort of talking about, you know, how do we? What are the sort of core functionalities? I worked with a very opinionated person on our team, which is Remy Sharp, who's really kind of well known in the JavaScript world and has a lot of experience. Has built JSBin and Nodemon, so he came in with some experience. So it actually, that one didn't come from the designers per se. It actually came from just sort of a strong, I guess, uh, opinionated view from the different people on the team mm-hmm. and having the the user perspective just sort of dominate. Uh, and we ended up building. We we actually designed three underlying core actions or four actually the authentication which is not always kicked in the sneak test to find issues sneak protect to apply patches when you need to and sneak monitor to take a snapshot of your dependencies so we can alert you to new ones and then we built a, an interactive overlay on top of those with sneak wizard which just runs the test figures out what the next actions should be from the test's output and just walks you through doing it so the wizard has its own logic. But you you don't have to do it. You can get the full functionality without the handholding from the product if you use kind of those four underlying actions. So it manifested well there. I think the the contribution of UX there a little bit less the sort of design pure sort of visual came a lot into the information architecture, sort of deciding which pieces of information really really need to be shown there on the CLI versus which ones we can link off to the website. So that was a very big kind of decision component. And then the other in, in our world, there's basically a different user flow between remediation and vulnerabilities. Yeah, I probably don't want to sort of go too deep into it here, but you know, when you have you might have multiple instances of the same vulnerable dependency across your tree, in which case you have one vulnerability multiple times. We call it vulnerable paths. Once again, mm. multiple iterations that we've had to sort of get to these names. So you have multiple vulnerable paths. And when you talk about vulnerabilities, you want to consolidate those together. But sometimes you have a single dependency that because it brings in a tree of dependencies under it, actually introduced four different vulnerabilities, different types, different vulnerable components, in which case you know, it's one, it's multiple known vulnerabilities, but it's really just one action, one remediation action that you need to do. So logically we actually have a remediation workflow and a vulnerabilities workflow. And naturally you kind of want them to mesh together, but they just don't. Uh-huh. And, um, and some of that acknowledgement was, was hard. So right now I would say our web UI is based on the vulnerability workflow and our CLI is based on remediation. Mm-hmm. Uh, acknowledging that when you're in the CLI, you're in that mindset. You're in the mindset of, you know, I'm right there, I'm really close to my issues and really my goal is to make this go away. I'm not in a you know, modes to sort of soak up a lot of information. While on the web, you're much more in a report mode. You're much more in a consumption, 
and you know we have a fix button, <laughs> which is awesome. Uh, and you sort of have a fix button just makes the problem go away, but the, the fix button is less handholdy and a little bit more just automatical. That's a really interesting point. We had an almost identical conversation with Sean Lee, the head of design, head of product design at Docker, about how they differentiate their tasks between the web UI and the desktop app. And he said something almost the same, which was that for visibility and discovery of what's going on, they rely on the web UI. And so there's a great tool for visualization, but people still go back to the command line to get things done. That's how they feel comfortable and fast. And that seems to be also a common thread among DevTools companies. Like we, we by nature, go back to the command line to get things done. But you know, nice visual interfaces can be great for discovery. Yeah, and I think for me it was a learning experience because my my natural inclination coming in was that we would want that we would basically want to create. Two different interfaces to the same functionality, right? You can fix via the CLI if you're kind of more terminal biased, or you can fix via the web if that's kind of your preference. And I thought that we will do it that way. Unfortunately, we didn't actually set that as a requirement as much. You know, I don't know if that's by chance or or a design. Uh, and because of that, we just sort of designed the workflows for each of those and learned about it after the fact. And then I kind of beat myself up about it a little bit because I I built a product called AppScan um, in earlier in my career, which is a security uh, web application security scanner. You know, this is at the time we had to educate people what cross site scripting and SQL injection was and. And uh, back then, lo and behold, we would find issues. They would have multiple variants. Ta ta ta. You know, we had a vulnerabilities view and a remediation view. Mm-hmm. You know, it sort of ended up getting to the same spot, which made perfect sense to me after we got to the same <laughs> conclusion at Sneak. Uh, but you know, somehow it kind of escaped my mind ahead of time. So maybe cost us a little bit of time. <laughs> The team composition point is also really interesting because one of the things I worry about the most as a designer of dev tools is that there are certain kinds of solutions that I just won't come up with as naturally as a developer, like going to a CLI solution. Like I'm just not going to think of that right away. And that design really has to be a team sport in dev tools companies where developers and designers are working together towards solutions. And it seems like more and more product companies are moving this way to have designers and developers embedded on product teams, but it just seems like table stakes for a dev tools company like you can't have designers working in isolation because they just won't come up with the best solution in every case yeah and i think uh, for us it also necessitated some process so we have our dev team our entire team is split between london and israel mm-hmm. um, that was a decision because you know we just sort of have awesome people from different backgrounds in in those two locations and you know it was a good decision but it costs us right you know we're a small company and and there's there's a cost, there's a cultural cost. We try to fly people around and all that. We've got video calls, but still. And uh, one of the things that that forced us to do, and also maybe something that came from the London mindset, and maybe from Joanna even and myself, is to is to still instill a certain amount of process and documentation, right, and make sure that things are outlined and are defined. And I think that gives us an opportunity to talk about UX uh, a little bit more. And we can see like the cases where we where we fall, the cases where we get it wrong, are typically cases where we hacked something together, or that we sort of built it a little bit more in one of the locations versus the other, and we just built it, we just got it done, which is great in many many aspects, but it also implies there wasn't really as much of an opportunity to just have the conversation, just the sheer need to explain from like one party to another, mm-hmm. what is it that you are doing and why you're doing it is uh, is very valuable. So although I think today I feel like design and UX we've sort of succeeded. That's one thing I feel is is successful, right? It's sort of it's a it permeated through the company. 
but sometimes when you get excited, you know, you still want to just get something done, and you just want to have functionality out. Uh, so that process uh, gives you an opening uh, for it. You know, process is generally a, a bad word in my mind, but it, you know, it, it is helpful sometimes. There was a really interesting talk here at Have You Bet by a product manager talking about his presence at companies, at early stage companies, and how his greatest influence on the company is just by sitting in his chair. He doesn't have to do anything or ask anyone to do anything. His presence just makes them aware that they need to like document the order of operations and how they're going to do things. And I feel like design can be similar, that it forces everyone to think about how we're going to do something before it gets done, if only for the benefit of the designer who has to work on that. And so yeah, it, like getting that as part of your process is uh, really valuable, I think, especially to early stage teams who can be really chaotic if they're not careful. Yeah, I gotta say that. Um, so, so this happens not just to dev tooling companies, and not even to just to small companies. I was when I was a CTO at Akamai. You know, we would sit at some of these like you know exec teams and talk about components. And it's funny because there I was always the anti-process person, and sort of became a little bit that sentiment when when somebody said that we need to set a process for this, they would kind of look at me and semi-apologize uh, <laughs> for it because I was always like a little bit more. Uh, and I got to say that like over the course of those conversations and um, and now maybe kind of implementing some of those learnings, I've kind of learned to appreciate process where process is due. But yeah, sometimes it's just sort of the the influence of a, of an individual that represents a concept or rep- mm-hmm. represents a, an ideal or an importance is you know useful to just get you to the right decision. Let's talk about the ergonomics of security. This one really hits home for me because we had an issue at Opsi onboarding people into the product where we had I think the easiest way of doing things, which was just asking for some Amazon API keys to get started with the product, but. People bounced. They didn't like it. They called us out on it not being secure. And so when we changed it, it was more difficult, but it improved our onboarding. Like more people were willing to take part. And so that was a really weird case for us where something that was harder for the user ended up being the better choice. And so this, like, you told us about this term, security ergonomics. So I'm interested to hear more about your view on it. Yeah, I think I think usability and security are are often enemies, uh, and sometimes you need to build something to make it simple. And, you know, we we mentioned some of these two factor auth and, and other examples, and I think that uh, that extensions or you know this this concept extends all the way from tooling such as you know token management or things like that. that are sort of heavy dev tools all the way out to like a user browsing a website. I gave this talk with Rachel Ellen Simpson, a designer in Munich for the Chrome team, who's you know amazing. And we talked a lot about HTTPS and uh, in general around Chrome and how they handle security. And we ended up sort of doing this talk called Security Ergonomics, talking about why do users make insecure decisions. And I feel like some of those lessons actually expand out to pretty much like the breadth of those. We ended up narrowing it down to to three things, right? You know. One is different motivations. So when a user comes in and wants to sort of take action, they are looking to take action, right? They're browsing to Facebook. They want to see baby pictures. Anything you sort of put in the in the way, you know, it's just in their way. They're just going to push through, right? They might want to see their bank account. So you have to remember that users have different motivations, and you have to sort of make sure that you help them get to that motivation. Sometimes security is motivation. Probably you've seen that in an Opsi. So they need to sort of feel secure as they're doing it. But you have to sort of figure out what are the motivations of the user taking the action. The second is lack. Of expertise, you can see a lot of that, right? If you clicked one of those yellow things on the Chrome browser around the lock, you will see that 
you know, this is yellow because the SHA-1 uh, algorithm was sort of deprecated and it's like, you know, what's, I can, you can count on one hand, right, the number of people that understand that statement and that would know what to do to act on it, right? I'm a security expert, I'm not entirely sure what I'm supposed to do uh, when I see that message. So you have to sort of understand that users don't have security expertise and try to help them mm. make the right decision, even if you give them the alternate decision, try to sort of guide them. Great examples in browsers around disabling and making it hard, all but impossible, to get through the security exception, the sort of bad certificate prompts. Mm-hmm. And browsers have really evolved how they handle that. And while it's still technically doable, they've managed to get drastic, drastic reductions in click throughs. And then the last bit was this notion of forgiveness as a continuum. And talk about how when somebody does make an insecure decision, try to kind of walk them through it. Can they start with something that's a little bit less secure and you can evolve them mm. through it, right? Is this something that can be temporary? In Sneak, we do something around allowing you to ignore vulnerability, but by default, it ignores it for 30 days. So we had to let you ignore vulnerability because sometimes you just have nothing to do about it. And if we wanted you to sort of break the build or you know do something that's like a gatekeeper around those vulnerabilities, we had to let you get through. So, but at the same time, we don't want to make it too easy to ignore a vulnerability. So we built in this option that forces you to just give a reason, just text, you know, nothing, nothing special, and it's just for audit purposes, for your own audit purposes. But you can ignore it, and by default, we would ignore it for thirty days. And you can go into that file and you can edit it and you can make that expiry be far out. But hardly anybody does. And in thirty days, it'll bug you, and hopefully by then there would be other remediation solutions, or maybe the third time it bugged you. You know, you would actually take action and actually swap that dependency for something else. So, I think the notion of like forgiveness as a continuum, and how do you kind of walk the user through a path of security, and that it's not all black and white, is very useful. So, you know, just different concepts for it. You can dig it up. Security ergonomics, mm-hmm. uh, Rachel Elin Simpson. You'll find uh, some good visuals and some learnings from Chrome about this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. Also, the concept of you know just trying to influence user behavior through design around security. I mean, you mentioned like the HTTPS thing, like changing from the the green lock to the red unlock thing. You know, just to sort of like a very subtle. You know, we're now like changing what is the default behavior. It seems like your product kind of does that in some ways as well. Like as you're going through the test process, like you know, actually being able to influence like future behavior based on you know just. Like for example, being able to ignore a vulnerability temporarily. Right. I think the like in most of these tools, you know, we build an expertise, right? Like in Convox, you would build some expertise about all the mess that is that happens behind the scenes that you know I don't want to understand, right? If I absolutely do not have to. Now, if I have to make a decision, it's useful for me for you to tell me what is the right decision here right now. If you can just make it for me, that's even better. <laughs> but if you can't make it for me, then at least like point out the trade-offs and put me on the default. So we try to sort of build it towards that, you know, through severities to tell you which ones are more important than the others. Through in the wizard, the default option that is selected, you know, it's the fact that you have an update and you can patch this vulnerability, but you should update. Like mm. the default is update. If you just did enter, 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 you'll be updating, which is the right thing in our minds. So all sorts of sort of small decisions like that. I remember the fairly famous case of ATMs and how they used to give you your money before they gave you your card back, and so people would just walk away without their cards. And now, thankfully, every ATM I've been to lately, they give you your card back before the cash comes out, and so you can't make that mistake. And those like forced behaviors and sensible defaults can go a really long way to correcting and influencing the behavior you want from people, and especially for security, that seems incredibly important. 
Yeah, exactly. And there's a there's an empathy for the user as well, right? To sort of just try to put yourself in sort of the user's shoes and understand, you know, why is it they're doing it, right? Like they're not idiots. Um, and when you look in security, it's just so easy. When you go to security conferences, in general, like I would say, the mindset is oftentimes less than helpful. You know, mm. there's like you come back from a security conference, you kind of want to curl up in a corner and cry, right? <laughs> you just you don't. Uh, oftentimes, you the the conferences are all about all the things that are broken and how can you break it further. While you know we look at DevOps conferences, we look at those things. They're they're helpful, right? They're about you know what can you do to sort of make it better, and they're all about the blameless pieces. So I think for security, and as is the case in many of the other components, you know, putting yourself, having some empathy for the user, understanding you know why is the user making this insecure decision, and what can you do to sort of uh, reduce that uh, likelihood, right, or sort of make it not happen, is is very valuable. All right. Thanks again to our guest Guy Pajani for coming by. It's been awesome talking about security and UX. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. This was a blast. Yeah, thanks for coming. If people want to get in touch with you online, where can they find you? Uh, they can look for Sneaksec in Twitter or Sneak.io, and myself, I'm just Guy at Sneak.io. All right. Thanks. That's about all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a DX topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at dmmc at heavybit.com or on Twitter at Don't Make Me Code. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.